0: Last week, we talked about some people around the world who love Jesus. And the price that they pay for that is everything from loss of jobs, kicked out of their homes, imprisonment, even execution. Why is that? How is that? Well, that's because some regular people regular followers of Jesus, like us, crossed a boundary, crossed an ocean, crossed the railroad tracks, and told them about Jesus. So no matter what our political passions are, what drives us for the prosperity of the United States or for moral condition of our country, at the end of the day, this is why he has us here. And this is where he's directing us. And this is what he wants us to be engaged in. in a couple of weeks we're going to start a mini series on telling people about Jesus, proclaiming the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. But this morning, we're going to talk about doing that. In our homes with our children let me pray for us before we begin father it boggles my mind that someone like me so inept so many weak areas that you would call me to be part of this grand engagement scheme Of proclaiming a message that oftentimes when first heard by people is resisted and even despised even hated and yet you would call us who maybe aren't skilled at persuasion you would call us maybe we're not skilled at speaking you would call us maybe we're not fond of conflict you would call us to proclaim this message that there was a God in heaven who so loved the world, not just so loved my neighborhood, but so loved the world that he gave us one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That amazes me. And you have entrusted all of us with this grand calling. Oh God. I would plead that I would be found faithful, not timid, not hiding, not silent. And I pray that we would be found faithful, not timid, not hiding, not silent. Whether it's telling our neighbor about Jesus or whether it's writing a check to help one of our missionaries. Families, stay in a place where we'll never go. And be our voice there. May we be found faithful. And I'll stand before you one day and hear your commendation. Well done, my good and faithful servant. This morning as we talk about being disciple makers in our own homes, I want to pray for parents that are still in the thick of rearing two-year-olds, and six-year-olds, and 14-year-olds, and 17-year-olds. And it's not a glorious job. There's not a lot of accolades coming our way from children. And even in the culture, society seems to diminish this calling to be a mom, to be a dad, and instead exalts callings like politicians or successful people in the marketplace. And so we don't become mom or dad to get a lot of boys, get a lot of pats in the back. But we do seek your approval. And I pray against the whispers of the enemy in the ears of parents today whispers that are saying, this is not really all that important. Invest yourself in something that matters. Invest yourself in a place where people will applaud you. Or worse still, he whispers, just let them do what they want. That's where the real joy is found, where you and your children are happy together, or even worse whispers you have a right to your own space you have a right to your own time you have a right to be revered and honored in your home and at the end of the day those kinds of whispers lead us down dark roads in which or from which our children suffer greatly and by which you and your fame is dragged through the mud oh god forgive us and i pray this morning that we'd be open to your holy spirit and your word to speak to us jesus name amen ephesians chapter 6 beginning verse 1 if you're a parent you know the first three verses well children obey your parents because you belong to the lord how many times did we teach our children this when they were young Children, obey your parents. Children, obey your parents. God says so. Children, obey your parents. And then we send them to Sunday school with hopes that the Sunday school teachers are going to reinforce this. Children, obey your parents. Children, obey your parents. Why? Because you belong to the Lord, for this is the right thing to do. And if that doesn't seal the deal, we say, honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. If you do honor us, things will go well for you. And you will have a long life on the earth. And then God turns around, stops talking to our children, and he talks to us. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger by the way you treat them. Rather, bring them up with the discipline and instruction that comes from the Lord. So I want us to wrestle as parents... This morning I want us to wrestle with this question is what I do as a mom and dad what I say as a mom and dad how I react to my children as a mom and dad can in those reactions can people see well let's back up can my children see and can I see that the glory of God matters more than anything else? Number one. And number two, can my children see and can God see that as a result of my desiring to glorify God, first and foremost, that I serve my children before myself? And that I put myself and my interests last. That's, our, that's the question, those are the questions I want you as a parent to wrestle with this morning. Because I know as I look back on my own days as parent, as a parent, that there were plenty of times when I was more interested in my comfort or the thing that I was doing at the moment or I was more interested in getting my child to comply than I was in seeing the glory of God in the relationship between I and my child. It was more about me serving me than serving my children. And one of the key things that I think that some of us parents are going to have to wrestle with today is the the issue of anger you know one mother said my kids call it yelling when I whenever I raise my voice I call it motivational speaking for the selective listener (laughs) motivational speaking for the selective listener I'm gonna read you a blog post by a mommy blogger her name is Sonia as Sonia gets up early in the morning when everybody's still asleep it's still dark she goes out into the living room before she curls up on her chair with a blanket she puts another blanket over the lamp before she turns it on so that none of her children will see the light coming out and get curious and get out of their beds prematurely and she wants to have these moments alone so that she can read And write and pray without being disturbed she loves those pre-dawn minutes and then we pick up her story once she's in the kitchen what feels like four seconds later I stand in the middle of our bustling kitchen and by the way don't just listen to the story kind of tuck some things away because we're gonna return to this story at the very end of the message Peanut butter and mandarin orange juice drips down my forearms. I've said, get your shoes on, to the same children four times. The clock on the wall ticks, and I swear I can hear a whistle. The train to school needs to leave soon. All the pre-dawn calm, along with my ever-repeated prayers for patience, kindness, and gentleness, evaporate with the heat of my coffee." One of my children, I I can't tell whether she has three or four children, but it appears like they're all school age. One of my children, the only one with shoes on, remembers, oh no, it's Thursday, and runs to the living room to look for his library books. His shoes track mud to and from and on the cream-colored rug. Another child repetitively asks me to zip her coat despite my answer. I will, in a minute. Another laments over his famine of socks and stands distraught next to the fridge in nothing but tiny underwear, his version of sackcloth and ashes. (laughs) And then in the last minute shuffle, Lord have mercy, one of the kids accidentally steps on my baby toe. And that's when I lose my mind. Let's say on a scale of zero to 10, where the nicest woman you know who speaks to her children in a voice that's barely audible is a one, and the rest of us speak, oh, I don't know, in the four to six range, I dial it right up to 47. Get your shoes off the rug! Your books are where you left them. I'll zip your coat when I'm done wiping my arms. I told you that. Stop asking. Get dressed! And then, because my baby toe is such a sweet little body part, I wail in frustrated pain, Why? 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 Why can't you all just get ready without needing me so much? And so there you have it. I get really angry over a bunch of little things really fast. But I keep going. I keep yelling. Scream is an embarrassing word, isn't it? Rage, that'd be a horrible thing to say. I know I shouldn't behave like this, shouldn't get so mad, but I do. I do. And while I ran on and on about responsibilities and planning and patience and personal space, and maybe I smacked my hand on a countertop for some added drama, a voice, a consciousness of sorts says, What in God's name are you doing? What's wrong with you? You said you weren't going to do this again. And I then say back to this voice, while I am yelling, I know, I'm awful. I don't know why I yell so much, why I get so mad. And that's when my heart drops to the ground and splatters in a shapeless, regretful mass. mess. I stop yelling, but I'm still angry. I don't want to admit this, my anger. I don't. I fear your judgment. I fear I'm the only one. I fear there's something irreparably wrong with me. We're all pushed to our limits at times. But I'm not talking about a mom who loses her temper every once in a while. I'm talking about a mom who has allowed a reactive behavior to become a regular habit. In the past, I've dropped hints about getting angry like little worms dangling on a hook to trustworthy women further along in their motherhood journey. Each was nibbled at with an understanding sentiment like, it's okay, I've been there too. And once, a solid bike came with a particularly, fun, particularly funny story about a power struggle with a teenage daughter that ended, ended up with someone pinned on the floor and someone else on her knees in prayer. But still, the hook never really dug into meaty flesh. In other words, she's asking for help, and no one stepped up. Waiting in the, school line, in the school drop-off line, my calm returns, along with sadness and shame. I close my eyes and repeat the same words I've said what seems like a 1,000 times, guys, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for yelling at you. A chorus of, it's okay, moms, comes from the little kids, but I can see the glowing, smoldering embers in the eyes of my older kids. My harshness doesn't extinguish as easily with them as it used to, and that's the most important line in this whole story. My harshness doesn't extinguish as easily with them as it used to, it lingers now, like the smell of smoke on clothes. One psychologist said this about a husband and a father. I don't know him, but I believe that generally people who behave that way know exactly what they're doing and they do it because it gets them what they want. After all, as you said, assuming this is the wife, as you said, his rage silences everyone. And the psychologist says this, wouldn't we all love to have a button? We could just push to silence whoever we want at times. I have two points this morning from this text. The first one is, if I worship myself, I'm going to wound my child. And I have a tension in my soul this morning. And the tension is this. If you're a parent, I don't want you either leaving this or any of these other sermons thinking, why bother? I just fail. I just mess up. Okay, you need the gospel to know that that's true and you should embrace it. Right. The only reason we have a gospel is because we mess up. The only reason you need Jesus is because you're a sinner. If you weren't a sinner, you wouldn't need Jesus. But because you are a sinner, you need Jesus. So you're a sinful parent. You need, Jesus. You need the gospel. So you are, you are a parent like every other parent. You might be different in degrees, but at the core, you are a sinful parent like every other parent here. That's on the one hand. On the other hand, is a call to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the gospel too. It's not just a gospel that saves a sinner, but it's a gospel that transforms a sinner. And so I don't want you to feel discouraged, but neither do I want you to feel like this is okay and my life is going to be lived out like this forever because as Sonia says this is not being extinguished in my older children like it used to be in other words the longer this goes whether it's rage anger or neglect I'm too busy all of these things have cumulative effects in our kids lives as they grow up so I feel the tension, I hope you do too. On the one hand, you know you're never going to nail it right. On the other hand, there is power for transformation. That power came in the gospel because you got the Holy Spirit in your life now, who as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, is is changing you more and more into the likeness of Jesus Christ. In other words, don't settle for where you're at. If I worship myself, in other words, if what I want matters more than what God wants, and then ultimately what my child needs, I worship myself, I'm going to wound my child. It's interesting, in the text, if you compare this verse 4, Ephesians 6, 4, where he says, fathers don't provoke, by the way, we talked about this earlier, Primarily, the parenting responsibility and accountability goes to the dads. That doesn't mean that mom's not involved. It's simply that as dads, we bear the accountability before God in the home. So, this, this is a call, though, to moms as well. Say, don't provoke your children to anger by the way you treat them. In other words, and he doesn't specify the treatment. I'll talk about a couple of options here in a, in a minute. But he's saying we run the risk of angering our children. Now there's a sister verse in Colossians. Ephesians and Colossians were, were sister books that Paul wrote, uh, one to the church in Ephesus and one to the church in Colossae. But there are a great deal of similarities between the two books in content. And he talks about marriage in both books, and he talks about parenting in both books. And when you get to Colossians chapter 3, verse 21, he makes this a similar statement, but it's a bit different. He says, "Don't aggravate your children, so that they become discouraged." And I don't know if this is true, but I speculate that Paul didn't simply make a different statement, similar but different in Colossians compared to Ephesians, because he was talking about two different kinds of child. In other words, your strong-willed, entered, um, strong-willed kind of mm, child is going to be pushed based on the treatment the negative treatment that Paul's describing, that child's going to be pushed to be angry, grow up being an angry child. Whereas the more sensitive, tender child grows up to become very discouraged. They, 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 they don't have great success in relationships because they just, they feel insecure, they're anxious, struggle with depression. I think that's a very real possibility that Paul has two different Kinds of children in mind. And one's going to grow up, become the angry adult. One's going to grow up and become the insecure adult. Remember, Sonia, my harshness doesn't extinguish as easily with them as it used to. And this is a son or daughter that's not just angry because they're disciplined. None of our children like discipline. We're going to talk about discipline next Sunday. They don't like uh, discipline. But most, most children find a sense of security in discipline if mom and dad are truly warm and loving in it. So that's I'm not talking about a child that's upset that they're disciplined, but how they're not just disciplined, but how they're treated day in and day out, whether they're responded to when they say, Dad, 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 Dad. Martin Luther's father, the great reformer, his dad was very severe. Um, Some biographers uh, describe him even as cruel. It was such a shaping of this great man of God that to his dying day, Martin Luther had difficulty when he prayed to say father. Because in his mind, father meant Someone angry. Father meant someone that he could never please. Father meant someone who was cruel to him. And I don't know for sure the kinds of treatment that Paul is talking about, but I know enough about my own mistakes and others that parents share with me to give you some samples in equitable treatment you have three children, and you treat two of them this way, but you treat this one this way. Remember Jacob's inordinate affection for his son Joseph over and against all the other brothers? You remember how that shaped the other brothers? Came to the point they hated their father and they hated this brother that their father loved above them. Inequitable treatment might be one kinds of parental behavior. Paul's talking about erratic treatment. We're going to touch more on this next week. You tell a child, um, this is a boundary that you can't cross. And then six times you don't discipline them for it. And then one they do. They get away with it Thursday, but not Saturday. They get away with it Monday, but not Tuesday. That is so confusing to a child. Unnecessary treatment. What I mean by that is <clears throat> that as parents, we don't treat the child like the age they're at. When I was a, a kid, I grew up believing that knocking all over a glass of water was a Great evil in this world, a a great sin, rather than simply a childish accident. You know, we expect 10-year-old behavior out of a 5-year-old, or 5-year-old out of a 2-year-old. Unnecessary treatment, criticism. I wonder how many adults here would say, you know, to this day, I feel like I can't please my dad or my mom especially dad never could please my dad I never I I could never perform well enough for him and make no mistake about it if if that's what they're shaped by in your parenting years that will be the person they become and that kind of incessant criticism leads to insecurity instability as as adults and you're afraid that you're never going to be able to please your boss. You're afraid you'll never be able to uh, please your spouse. Harshness. This is probably the biggest concern that I think Paul is speaking about, harshness. And by the way, there's a difference between harshness and firmness. Firmness means the child knows the boundaries, they know the expectations, and, and mom and dad lovingly confirm them. Harshness is yelling, slapping, pinching, shaming, ridiculing. These are the weapons of harshness. Justin Colson, who is with the Institute for Family Studies says, many parents truly believe that the only way to get children to obey is through fear, which is why they often act out in harshness. He's talking about the parents acting out in harshness. We want to intimidate our children so we get them to obey us. But that really isn't the main goal. Main goal is not to get our children to obey us, main goal is to make them disciples of Jesus Christ. Obedience is going to be part of getting them to that point, but that's not the main goal. I'm, t- I'm, I'm trying to get us as parents to ask this question this morning. Am I, either in some ways or as kind of a matter of normal operation, am I a self-centered parent? I'm talking about the idolatry of myself, seeing that in that I want me to be happy more than I want my child to be served I want me to be happy more than I want God to be glorified and you can only tell that in the moment when you lose it what do I want now in a time like this we would all say yep I want God to be glorified I want my children to be served but in the moment when push comes to shove when emotions flare that's when we really find out what we want more than anything else Is my desire to be respected, obeyed, for my children to conform to my norms, my desire for peace in my home, matter more than anything else? Critical and harsh parents usually see their children as falling short of their own standard rather than God's. On the flip side, if we worship God, we will as a matter of course, end up serving our children. If we worship ourselves, we will wound our children. If we worship God, we will serve our children. The, the gospel itself is full of self-denial, right? God, <clears throat> I think it's Romans eight thirty two. God, who did not spare his own son, but graciously gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Self-denial. And then Jesus, Hebrews 12, 3, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant, became obedient even to the death on the cross. The gospel is full of self-denial. And then when we come to the gospel, We're called to deny ourselves, right? Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. In fact, if you're not willing to do that, you really can't be my disciple. If the gospel was full of self-denial from the Father to the Son to me, that shapes my parenting priorities. I've already said them, I'll repeat them. God's glory matters most. My child's needs come second as defined by heaven, not as defined by them or even defined by me. What's the child's greatest needs? My happiness as a parent, my comfort, my peace, my approval by others, all of that comes, comes last. How many, how many times have, have you dealt with your child in a way that is designed to impress onlookers? And I mean that not only by applying discipline but even by neglecting discipline how many of you have been in the grocery store and things have gone south with your three-year-old and you're like well I can't I can't give them what they need right now because one people are watching now I'm not talking about spanking them in the middle of Target that doesn't work today I always tell engaged couples, you need to put your, all your stuff back and go outside of Target to the car and do what needs to be done there. But we're very sensitive about people watching us and, and what are they going to think? You know, who cares? What does God think and what do they need? Paul answers the question, verse 1, whose children are these? They belong to the Lord. If they belong to the Lord, then what the Lord thinks and what the Lord wants has to come first. Before what the children want, before what I want. They belong to the Lord. Now, what's my duty? knowing that they, they, They're just on loan to us for a while. I mean... One day we're going to have to stand before God and give an account about all of our lives, and for those of us who are parents, we're going to give an account of our parenting. Because God just gave us these kids. I don't care whether they're biological or adopted or foster. God's given us these kids for a season, just for a season, and then we're going to have to give an account one day about how'd we do during that season. What's my duty? Paul says, don't do this, don't provoke your children to anger, rather bring them up with the discipline and the instruction that comes from the Lord, and I think that means, first of all, that we have been disciplined and that we have been instructed by the Lord, because then the instruction and the discipline flows through us, doesn't bypass us. We're being shaped and molded. Listen, if your kids are not chiseling off the sinful edges in your life as a parent, you ain't listening. Gary Thomas says in his book Sacred Marriage that what if God designed marriage more to make you as a spouse holy than to make you happy? And the longer I'm married, the more convinced that's exactly right. Uh, just an interesting footnote, though, as he makes us more holy, we tend to get more happy. But I think the same thing occurs with parenting, that God has given these precious little children as chisels and rasps and awes, To conform us make us more and more into the likeness of Jesus Christ in a way we wouldn't otherwise become like him training our children with the Lord's discipline and instruction which has come through us first been channeled through us now let's go back to Sonia do you remember the boy that ran across the cream-colored rug with these muddy shoes you remember that now I, I you take into account that I'm a grandfather now not a parent anymore so I I have the opportunity of looking back so it's easy for me to be judgmental or it might be easy for me to see the light easier now than way back then the first thing I'm thinking when I'm reading this is you have three or four school-aged children and you have a cream-colored rug <laughs> in the living room? Are you kidding me? We have, in our basement family room, we have a um, wall-to-wall carpet, and the, it's a huge family room. The whole, we have a rancher. It's a whole downstairs. And we have all of our family get-togethers there because it's the biggest room in the house. That carpet is is decorators were given 40 colors of brown and asked, which one's the ugliest? And they said, that one, and the previous owners of our home bought it. But it works great with mud or Hawaiian punch or turkey or mashed potatoes. We, it's 23 years old, and we decided we're not going to replace it until our youngest grandchild is 10. So we got a few years, even though it's hideous. We got a few years ago. Why? What's the point in making a big deal out of muddy shoes? And for that matter, why not teach your children, okay, like some of you do. We never did this, but when you come in the house, you put your shoes on the porch or you put them right inside the door and then we're walking around the cream-colored rug on you know stocking feet or bare feet and I'm sure as the mom you know laid out the room put the put it up together you know that would look good there and that piece would just perfect there and artificial flowers there and a cream-colored rug that would just set things off not taking the children into account but that's what parents do if The glory of God matters most and the needs of the children matter second as opposed to our decorating perfections and this is coming from a guy who's a decorator colors matter a lot to me and doing it not just almost right but perfect the first time matters a lot to me and that's the whole point Do all those things about me matter most or does God matter first and then these children? The other thing, she comes out, Sonia comes out early in the morning for her wonderful time by herself in which she's reading the scriptures and other things and praying and writing blog posts. And then she's packing lunches. Could you pack lunches before the kids get up? Could you pack lunches the night before? Are some of the kids old enough to pack lunches all by themselves? You see, I'm trying to get us to think less about what I want and more about what God wants. The expectations these kids all go to school, but one of them can't zip his own coat up. Why not? And it's easier sometimes. Isn't it true? We all say as parents, it's just easier to do myself. But that's not what's good. We're rearing them, training them. We're coaching them. And, 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 you know, we get asked these kinds of things instead of stopping, calling a timeout for ourselves. We go over and we teach again the coat zipping. Now you try it. In other words, it, we just want to get it that Issue off of our plate, move on to other issues. And by the way, some of this, the root of some of these problems in our parenting, are you ready? It's because we simply don't have the time to be proper parents. We have crammed our weekly planners with so much stuff that parenting our children is a sideline. And if you have a gripe about that, my email is kroar at keystonechurch.org. But God wants some of you to hear that. Because parenting is not a sideline. It takes intentional, loving time. You've got a child who's Able to go to school, standing around in his kitchen in his underwear, not knowing what to do. More training. Now, you don't know who Sonia is. You don't know her last name. I didn't give her. I don't know her last name. So we can beat up on her, (laughs) and she doesn't know it. But brothers and sisters, I have made more than enough mistakes. I'm not picking on anybody. But we should not be content. That's why these verses are in here. Our number one objective is not to have a peaceful home. It's it's to make our children disciples of Christ. And to that end, we teach and we coach and we live that gospel no matter what it takes. A life verse for me for probably the last 35 years has been 2 Corinthians 5:15. I got a text from Andrew yesterday. I was driving home from Virginia and I get a text. He goes, "There is no 2 Corinthians 15:5. What is it supposed to be?" Oh, 5:15. The passage says, "Jesus died for all so that everyone who receives the new life in Jesus Christ will no longer live for themselves." Hard stop. And that means us as parents. No longer live for ourselves. Instead, we will live for Christ who died and was raised for us and for these precious children God's given us. Father, I want to pray for brothers and sisters here this morning. Uh, First of all, that you would guard them against discouragement and that you would fill their heart to overflowing gratitude. Gratitude. For what you have done for them and then that that would shape their parenting not the latest thing they've seen on facebook or instagram not the latest counsel they've heard from their friends not the latest podcast or the latest blog post but the calling to be a mom or dad that directs children to be followers of jesus christ and that in embracing that, these parents would say, you know what, going forward, nothing matters more than the glory of God. What you want. And my own preferences and my own desires, and whether it's for peace in the house or whether it's strict obedience, none of that matters nearly as much as my child's needs. Once I figure out what those needs are. Then I'm going to serve them to that end. For God's glory. For their good. And as a little side benefit. For me to be made more and more into the likeness of Christ. In Jesus name. Amen.